0: Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marian Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. Loretta Wurtenberger is one of the founders of the Institute for Artists' Estates. She has been managing the estate of Hans Arp, among others, since 2009. The prospect of managing artist estates has become a news topic lately. So we're presenting the audio of Dr. Wurtenberger's talk from the Keeping the Legacy Alive conference held in Berlin in September of 2016. Entitled Back to Square One, Wurtenberger's talk describes the seven-year odyssey the Hans Arp estate made from controversy over posthumous casts to a vibrant discussion of the artist in the academic world, museums, and on the art market. The talk begins with a brief biography of Arp and the conditions of the estate upon his death in 1966. What followed was decades of dealer-led management that eventually called the role of the estate into question. In 2009, when Wurtenberger took over the strategic management of the estate, ARP was out of fashion. There was no academic interest in the artist, the catalogue raisonne was outdated, the last U.S. exhibition had been held in the 1980s, and ARP's work was undervalued on the art market. Wurtenberger helped the foundation focus on repositioning ARP through sponsoring academic research, enabling museum exhibitions not only of the best-known works, but also of the lesser-known works held by the estate, and by enhancing the artist market in Europe and the United States. Finally, Wurtenberger explains that the ARP foundation is not legally allowed to have an endowment, so it must sell from its holdings each year to cover the annual expenses. Their motto sell as little as possible, but as much as necessary. And with that, let's listen to Dr. Wurtenberger now.
1: Um, This morning I was um, asked by some participants, are we only talking about the successful rich estates? And hearing her talk, and also comparing that with the many interviews and conversations we had in preparing our book, with also many estates which don't have millions and billions of dollars worth of art, uh, there are always same and similar questions. If you're a multi-million dollar estate as the Rauschberg Foundation is, or if you're a small estate, you have to define what is the core of your strategy. You have to ask yourself, do I want to involve family or not? And even if the art you own is not worth millions of dollars, you have to ask yourself, what is the core of the art I want to keep and which art do I maybe want to work with in the art market? So I think, if you're a small estate, you're a big estate, you're a mid sized estate, all these structures and strategies we're learning about today are very, very valuable. And we'll see tomorrow afternoon how mid sized and smaller estates have also found very interesting solutions with smaller budgets, maybe only being comprised of a couple of thousand euros a year, but by asking and answering their similar questions and found successful ways of doing so. I want to tell you a bit about the estate of Jean Arp today because Jean Arp is quite an exciting example how things not only always go well, well with an estate and how that mustn't be the end of the world and how you can, if you go back to square one, how you, if you go back to asking these questions Christy so well explained to us, you can reposition an estate and the legacy you're entrusted with. Um, I mean, it would be wonderful to have the time to tell you much more about Hans Arp, the artist, but today I want to focus on the story of the estate of Hans Arp, but just to remember all of us, who was Hans Arp? Hans Arp was certainly one of the masters of sculpture in the 20th century. He was an extremely communicative, innovative person, which led to the very interesting situation that he was a member of many, many artists' group, even of artist group, which at that time were kind of contradictionary to each other. He was a member of DADA, a founding member of DADA. He worked with the Surrealist, He was a member with Cercle et Carré and with Abstraction et Création, two groups which were actually opposing to each other, but he was capable of being part of both. He was married in his first marriage to another very talented artist, Sophie taeuber Arp. Sophie Teuber and him, there's a long story of their collaboration, which is a wonderful story to have a full evening of its own. And Sophie taeuber Arp passed away tragically of an accident in the house of Max Bill, the Swiss sculpture, 1942, and left Arp quite devastated. They didn't have any children together and Sophie was, for him, a real counterpart. I I wouldn't use the word muse, but it would totally underestimate her position towards, they were really equals, and um, in a very positive dialogue. Um, He later then married Marguerite Hagenbach-Arp. Marguerite was a friend of both Sophie Teuber and um, Jean Arp. She was a great collector of her own. She was quite wealthy. She had been buying work by Max Ernst, by Hans Arp, by Sophie Teuber-Arp, many other artists of that generation very uh, very early on. And there's this wonderful story that when Hans Arp came over his grief, after I would say five, six years of moaning in which he could almost not work, he felt that he shouldn't be alone anymore. And he wrote Margrit a letter saying, my friend, I don't want to be alone anymore. Do you want to come and live with me? Um, She um, later said and recalled she had the feeling that Arp would expect her to jump on the train immediately and come to uh, his house within 24 hours. Um, It took a longer while, but I'm telling you that a bit because Magritte later is very important for the estate and her position in the estate. She did come to his house. It took maybe two months for her to show up. She didn't leave again. And she was a very, very good manager to her husband. She knew the art world. She knew how to maneuver the art world out of her position of being a strong and potent collector herself. And she managed his career through the 50s and 60s until he passed away in 66. These 50s and 60s were really a phase of great success for Arp. He really went to the zenith of the art world. He was awarded the grand prize at the Biennale of Venice at the same year Max Ernst was awarded it. He had solar exhibitions at the MoMA, he had solar exhibitions at the Tate, he had solar exhibitions later at the Metropolitan, he was represented by strong powerful galleries at that time in New York by Sidney Janis and he really he sold well and when he passed away in 1966 one would think that's a no-brainer to take care of that estate. What happened then? You see a picture of his grave. He himself designed his gravestone by putting his um, iconic work, the star, on his grave. As I said, he died in 66. He left Margrit Hagenbach up. Also with Margrit, he had no um, children, and Margrit. although she was already elderly at that stage, she was in her 60s, she was still of good health and she did further a very good job in managing the estate of her husband until around mid 70s. In the mid 70s, she had had some tax problems because of inheritance tax in France. It wasn't easy to deal with the dual citizenship, German and French, Jean-Arp was of both nationalities. And in the mid-70s, she got more and more advice to think about setting up some form of non-profit situation to solve the tax situation. At that stage, she met a German art dealer. His name is Johannes Wasmuth. was, was Johannes Wasmuth? And Johannes Wasmuth had created in uh, near Bonn at Rolandseck a cultural center called the Badhof Rolandseck and which had been at that time quite attractive. All the politicians came there, even um, Kennedy came and visited there to look at art. So it was really at the, Bonner, at the core of the Bonner Republic of the 70s. And Johannes Wasmuth and Magritte came along quite well, and he convinced her to give the estate to a newly founded um, organization called the Stiftung hans Art and Sophie teuber Art e.V., and to make him the chair of that estate. For Magritte, this had the advantage of solving tax problems, and at the same time, she felt that she was aging. She didn't have any children to follow her in this position, and she was happy to have somebody help her to support in this work. Um, Johannes Wasmuth did this job until the mid-'90s, and... It's a bit difficult how to phrase this, but um, he sometimes mixed up his position as an art dealer with that as as the, the head of the estate. He did it on a public relationship side very well. He sometimes didn't go quite by the rule book concerning certain other aspects of managing this estate. And in the mid 90s, when he passed away, And he left, he didn't only leave a big pile of debt to the estate because um, he was somebody who was crazy for art and he couldn't stop buying art and he did that on the expenses of others and forced the estate um, to sell a lot of art in order to pay that debt. But also he um, dealt with the question of posthumous casting um, in a bit freer way than he should have. And so in the mid-90s, early 2000, and I think the audience from Germany knows more about that than the international audience, the Arp estate was in the discussion in the German newspapers a lot about posthumous casting. And it was really a pity because the whole discussion didn't focus anymore on the work of Arp and really getting interest in his work going, but it was all about politics, rumors, and aspects like that. And so this was the situation when in 2009, the head of the um, foundation board passed away and a new head came to the foundation who had no connection with the past. And he said, well, we have to kind of get back to square one and think how we can deal with this. I mean, we had at that time already had almost a 30 year history of the estate. And on the one hand, it was really a bucket of gold because you have this wonderful artist, you have this wonderful art, you have an artist in an international context and at the same time you were kind of stuck and that was the moment we got involved um, because we had been dealing with the estate of the grandfather of my husband, we had known the art market as collectors and being business-wise involved in the art market quite well and he asked us to develop a strategy to um, how can one get out of this um, Sackgasse, sack de kühl, this dead end. And um, so we developed a strategy. Half a year later, he came back to us and asked us if we would be willing to help transform the strategy into reality. And out of this developed a very interesting collaboration um, just to make it transparent how we are set up today at the foundation. Um, We are kind of three parties supporting the oeuvre of Hans Arp. One is the board of the foundation. They are um, they are non, non-paid. They are been, um, doing this on a non-profit basis, and um, they are very well in the whole strategic and financial area. They are not that deeply into the art market. And um, then there's a curator here, Mrs. Steinkamp, who is here also today, and um, she does the everyday curatorial work. And then it's us as an external party serving as a kind of external CEO kind of structure to the estate and advising the board of trustees which at the end then take the decision. And so what situation did we face on a more general term 2009? It was that, as I said, the interest had gone more to politics of the estate than to the work of Hans Arp. And I have to say, Hans Arp kind of fell out of fashion also. We had almost no academic interest in his work anymore. I think the last doctor thesis was written beginning of the 80s. And I find always academic interest very exciting and important because I find it really important that each generation of young academics finds their own approach to an artist's estate. That's, for me, one of the key elements of keeping a legacy alive. We had very outdated catalogue résonés, The last one was done in 1968. We hadn't had major museum exhibitions for almost 20 years. The last one in America was 1983. We had questions about posthumous casting. Let me just um, include three sentences about the situation with posthumous casting with Hans Arp because we heard this morning the um, statement of um, Mary Moore concerning posthumous casting with Henry Moore. Hans Arp had a very different approach to posthumous casting than Henry Moore did. Henry Moore in his will left, left uh, clear um, saying that he didn't want any posthumous casting to be done. Hans Arp explicitly wanted posthumous casting to be done, but only within the editions he had envisioned. He had generally had editions of 3 plus AP, AP or 5 of plus AP. And there were quite a number of works where the editions hadn't been finished at the time of his death in 1966. And he had put up a whole list of um, casts which he would be okay with if they would be done posthumously. And in 1977 his widow and his secretary Greta Stör gave this list over to the foundation. And that is until to today the basis for us to do posthumous casting. But this whole process wasn't transparent in 2009. Nobody knew what was going on. Was there posthumous casting which was authorised or wasn't it authorised? And so that was a big black hole and we'll talk about later how we tried to bring light into this hole. And all this led to the fact that his work was also undervalued in the art market if you compare it to his peers, if you compare it to people like Henry Moore, like Calder, other sculptures of his generation, it was dramatically undervalued and undertraded. So we sat together with the Board of Trustees for a year and really kind of like what Helen described at the beginning when she took over the Vandenberg estate with her brothers, we shut the doors. And we took our time to dig into key questions and try to find for us a new reason for being, although we had been already 30 years old. It was the question of what do we want to achieve for Arp? And how can we recreate interest in his work? And also important, how can we regain trust in the estate? And is there a purpose for the estate in the future and what could that purpose be? There were many options we discussed. We discussed about opening a second museum with all the holdings of the estate because the estate owns the largest collections of ops worldwide, so there would have absolutely been a basis to do a museum. But we came to the conclusion that it would make much more sense to send these works out in the world than trying to get the world to us into a single museum. There were options of closing the estate, saying we'll sell everything, we'll close it, Maybe after 30 years, the reason for being is over. And then there was the option to try to shape the future for Arp again. And we defined three core goals for the estate. One was to try to reposition Arp as one of the most important sculptures of the 20th century. The second one is to establish the foundation as the study center for Hans Arp. And we wanted to take over a more active role in the academic museums world, as well as the art market. And how did we do that? Or how are we still doing it? It's actually now um, seven years and we're still in the middle of the process. Um, the, the basis for our actions was that we strongly believe that in the today's art world, the three pillars of the academic world, the museum world and the market are all equally important to keeping a legacy alive. You have to engage with the museum's world to have an artist shown. And if you like it or not, what is shown is sold and what is sold is shown. So you have to um, work with the art market actively together and again what is reflected by the academic world has influence on the curators because they're very strongly interlinked and by that again on the museum's world. So these three columns were the basis of our actions. And the very first action was setting up or um, getting a new catalogue resume going. I know that many estates take over these responsibilities by themselves, which in many um, in many cases is the best choice to do. For us, with this um, history of the estate and the lost trust in the estate's work, we said it's more important that we do one thing, that we open up our archives to independent research. Ari Hartuch, who we'll get to know later, he took over that research. Um, He had access to any little piece of paper in the estate. And what he developed was really a um, quite remarkable method of giving transparency to the question of posthumous and lifetime casting in the catalogue raisonné. And I show here, you see those little signs in front of the um, single works. The catalogue raisonné, lists all known casts of ARP today, which are about 3,000. And what was for us important was that anybody who gets a piece of ARP on the table, if it's an auction house, if it's a scholar, if it's a museum curator, and wants to know, is this work an authenticated work? He can get the hardtok out of his shelf, he can open it up, and within a second he knows if it was authenticated or not. And this little sign down there with the, this one here, those are now the non-authenticated works. And by that, the estate also did a whole cleaning up of its own history because it showed where did we exceed the authentication lists. And the works which the estate had um, sold before, those are works we um, the owners we wrote to and offered them to exchange them for authenticated work or to reimburse them for them buying work which was not okay. But just to give you a relation also, there were we have today about 3,000 known casts of work by Hans Arp, and 36 were not okay. And if you compare this small number and every each of these were one too much, but still it's a relatively small number and compared to the overall size of the oeuvre and compare that to the size of rumours there were before. It was really the best step we could take to create total transparency. And this notion of transparency is really for us the most important notion ever since, and is like a red line through all our activities. It's also the red line for the showroom which we created here in Berlin. The holdings of the estate were also not very transparent to the outside world. Um, As I said, the estate um, owns the largest collection of um, ARPs worldwide, but they were all packed up in boxes, scattered in three different um, storages um, in Germany. And we had always lent to museums, but it was kind of... um, coming back that the same 15-20 blockbuster works were always requested for loan again and again and again because nobody knew what else was there and so we it's here in Berlin it's open to the public for anybody who wants to visit you're mostly welcome it was important for us to try to display them in the way that they're totally transparent again and we invited Curators, we invite academics until today, if they plan a show to come over and to really walk through the oeuvre of Hans Arp and to discover parts of his works which they even often don't know about. To look at the late work, to look at the early work, to understand by seeing the works and not only seeing images, how the work of Arp evolved. I was mentioning that for us, it was one of the goals to become the study center for Hans Arp worldwide. And that meant that we don't only want to open up the archives but that we really want to support scholars in working with Arp and to motivate young scholars to rethink, to work on subjects related to Hans Arp. And so in connection with the showroom, this is the same space here where the showroom of the collection is we um, opened up a su- um, study center and we financially support artists and art historians who work on Hans Arp and related matters. Then one of the next steps was that in 2015 we started biannual conferences where we tried to bring together the community of scholars working on Hans Arp as well as galleries and art dealers who are involved in his work. And um, the next Conference. This one was um, reflecting on the relationship Hans Arp had with the American market. And the next conference will be 2017 with the koller Museum. Then there were, we we're doing publications coming out of these conferences, bringing together the status quo of the academic research. And I'm very happy to say that also on the museum side, more activity has been picked up. In the last three years, we've seen a number of wonderful exhibitions, and we're having three important exhibitions coming up. One, finally, also in the United States, there will be a big retrospective at the National Sculpture Center in Dallas. And also here, I was stating at the beginning that our aim is to take over a more active role in the museum world, is that... In the past, it was more passive that museums came to us, asked us for loans, and then we reacted generally giving the loans. Today, it's that um, Mrs. Steinkamp, our curator, and us, we try to develop exhibition ideas ourselves and to represent, uh, present these ideas to curators. Hopefully, sometimes they pick them up, sometimes they develop them further. But it's a- always an idea of throwing a stone into the water and to more actively engage with the museum world. And I always try to encourage estates to, um, to, to go out and, and throw as many stones into the water and not only sit there and be in a more passive role. This also includes the art market. Um, the estate today works with three wonderful galleries together. The first gallery is Mitchell and Nash, and they have been working with the estate for over 20 years now, always supporting the work of ARP, doing very important exhibitions in New York. Then it's the Gary Thomas in, in Germany. German collectors are an important market to ARP and that's why we chose to include a German gallery into the portfolio. And then we work with Hauser & Wirth together. And We are often asked, how does that work? Does that work well to have three galleries instead of one? Are they in competition? Does it maybe give some fraction to the process? And what I discovered is that it works very well if the estate itself controls this process and is interested in creating these three galleries as a team. We really try to get them to be in dialogue with each other, to collaborate, to look what exhibitions can they do maybe together or in a way that they don't cannibalize each other, and also that they work together in secondary market activities. And I have to say that with these three galleries at least, it's a wonderful collaboration which they really, as a team, support the work of the estate and are great ambassadors for the work of Hans Arp in the art market. And all that has really led to effects of which I hope many more will follow that in the last two years we have given out already 10 scholarships and a community of interested scholars is developing more and more at the last conference we had more than 120 scholars working on Hans Arp already together here in Berlin also the prices are rising this is important for us for our holdings because we as most foundations finance ourselves by selling works by Hans Arp and if, our, if the prices for our rise, the value of our assets rise, and we have more financial means to support our non-profit causes. And this is a development which is happily going on at the moment. And so, what makes me the most happy in this whole process is that now, after seven years of work. The public is not longer talking about politics and the estate, but it's talking about the work of Hans Arp, and I think that's the place he deserves. Thank you. Any questions? Yeah, Pierre. My name is Pierre Valentin. When you took over the
0: ARP estate, was, was there any money in the pot to make all this happen? And if not, how can one go about raising funds
1: to, make, to, 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 to generate this result? That's a very interesting question. I think the ARP estate is typical in the sense that we have always been and still are art rich and cash poor. Um, didn't leave any endowment and there has never been created a big endowment in the foundation which also has to do with German foundation laws. We as a non-profit in Germany have to spend the money we make. Meaning that, and it, it sounds a bit awkward, but it's the way we're not allowed in our legal structure to build up an endowment which we then invest and then get money back. So... The way we finance ourselves, and I think this counts for 90% of all estates, is by from time to time selling works. And um, just to give you an idea of specific figures, our annual budget is somewhere between 250 and 300,000 euros per year. This is a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money if you think also about what we try to create with that money. And if you look, for example, into our scholarship program, we have an annual budget of scholarships, which isn't a lot. We have 25,000 euros a year to give away on scholarships. And that might sound little, but for a student who gets 6,000 euros for six months writing about Jean-Arc, it's a lot. And I think, especially in the academic field, you can reach a lot with limited means of money. And um, the second source of income is copyright. We have somewhere between 40 and 60,000 euros per year copyright, which is for German artists a lot. If you look at the numbers of the VG Bild, I think we only have 12 artists in Germany who have incomes of above 100,000 euros a year. But that only makes a small amount of our budget. The rest is through sales. Yes, Anthony.
0: What did you do about the patination of the posthumous casts? How did you deal with that? With what? With the patination, because Arp worked on the patina of the
1: sculpture. Absolutely. The interesting thing is, and I think that's why with Arp, posthumous casting is totally okay, is Arp himself never worked on the patina. For him, um, he was the one developing the form. He always worked in plaster. And the moment the plaster form was finished, he gave it to craftsmen outside. At the end of his life, he worked a lot with NOAC, and NOAC are the foundry which are taking care of that still until to today. And it was mostly interesting enough, Magritte, in the last 20 years, which were his most successful years, who then said, well, it's okay if you do this one in a dark brown patina, and that one for the American market in a shiny gold patina. (laughs) It wasn't all that much who cared about it. And I think that's a great difference, for example, towards Brancusi. I mean, we all know Brancusi was really the one standing there, making the patina, working on the patina. And the moment an artist who is so involved with the patina, if you then do posthumous casting, you leave out a very important aspect of his artistic methods. And this whole posthumous casting question, I think the legal aspect is only... One aspect, we all, those who are copyright holders, they are legally allowed to do that. But I think it's the most important thing is respecting the artist's will and at the same time reflecting on the artist's um, practice, how he did it, and to then see if posthumous casting fits in that or not. We have another question over here. Hi, Um, how do you work with the other um, foundations? I believe there's a museum in Paris, or outside Paris, or a foundation, Jean Arp, and I think one in Switzerland? Yes, we have three Arp Foundations which hold the name Arp Foundation. Um, There's the Locarno one in Switzerland, there is the Clamart one in France, and then there's us, just two sentences. It's a bit complicated, but you can summarize it quite well shortly. The um, Swiss foundation derived not out of the estate of Hans Arp, but out of the personal collection of Magritte Hagenbach-Arp. Hans Arp and Magritte lived in Locarno at the end of their lives, and this house, in combination with the personal collection of Magritte Hagenbach-Arp, was the basis for the Fondatione Arp in Locarno, and she was a big collector of Arp, so they obviously have a lot of work by Arp, but also they also have other works, and they're not involved with the whole copyright and everything like that. Then you have the Fondation Arp in Claremont, which is today independent, but was until the mid-19s, a subsidiary of the German foundation. And they had to become independent for tax reasons also, and if you look at it, what are the holdings of these three estates? The Fondazione Arp in Locarno has the house in the personal collection of Magritte. The French collection has the old house of Sophie Teuber Arp and Hans Arp in Meudon. And they have the works which were made there in the house for that house. And the whole estate as itself, including the copyrights, the archives, the letters and everything, that went to the German foundation. And the history developed in such a way that today we have very good relationships with the Swiss Foundation. We have good relationships with the French on an everyday level, like we exchange archival information, we exchange aspects of authentication. I have to say, in some political aspects, they are not as transparent as the Swiss and we have become. And so are sometimes some friction, but in general, it's okay. Hmm? Sorry, I think they have... Plasters, they have a. they plasters, no? yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. I have a question
0: there. I was very much taken by your study center and the kind of control exercised in a, dare I say it, kind of holistic manner in relation to Arp's work and I was wondering what is your view, perhaps your private view, not that of Mm -hmm. the foundation, but your private view on the notion of estates being taken over, which is often the case, or settled at commercial galleries. Do you find that there's a conflict of interest there?
1: It's a wide topic. Um, It's the question of um, galleries and estates. I think it's first of all always important We always read about the estate so-and-so is now represented by or taken over by. And it's a wording which includes many different options. There are estates which are really taken over, literally being bought by galleries. There are, on the other hand, estates which simply do their selling through galleries. And then there's a whole variety in the middle where galleries support estates in administrative issues where they support estates in organizing or funding catalogue resumes. So I think it's always very important to look for each estate. What is the specific solution? And that's why I often find it so important that on the side of the estate there's enough art market know-how to navigate these options to the best benefit of the estate. Yes?
0: One quick question. Um, you, you mentioned about financing uh, before and the, the fact that you were, um, kind of created a pool of money that will finance the operations of the foundation. Mm-hmm. Long term, what, what's the plan? I mean, once that, those funds run out, um, do you, how, how do you expect to maintain the operation?
1: As I said, as a German non-profit entity, we're not allowed to create an endowment, but we have to spend the money we have. And that means we have to be very careful and strategic in choosing the pieces we sell. And we have um, devoted ourselves to selling as little as possible and as much as necessary. And it's always again and again each year a process of defining what work can we miss and what work will bring enough money to do the next funding round. So it's it's a bit a year-to-year approach. I would much rather prefer to really create an endowment and develop investment strategies and by that put the foundation more on an independent level, but we are legally not allowed to do that. I think we have time for one last question. Yes. Yeah, it seems that all of the foundations in any of the countries are fending for themselves in their own way, mm-hmm. however the legislation of the country is set up. Is, is there any kind of uh, dialogue between a foundation and the government or the country? Is, is there an interest of Germany in ARPS work? Is there any, or for that matter, the French Foundation would have an interest in the Picasso, I guess they have a big museum there. so. Could you say something about that? I think that's a very, very interesting aspect. It's the question of the relation of estates preserving cultural heritage and the appreciation of doing so through public, or through the public. Um, I think it's a difficult field, and it's much too less is done. Um, I know that in Belgium, and maybe Helen can talk about that a bit more tomorrow, there is an interest, for example, in the government, or she has also been creating and and really working on creating an interest of the government in the cultural heritage position and importance of estates. Certainly, the governments are always interested in famous dead artists, yes, but they seldom support the estates, or never ever. I don't know a single European country at least where there's any public funding for that. And it sometimes surprises because there's a lot of public funding for living artists in in various ways, but the moment they're dead, there's no option anymore. And that's why it means that they they all have to fund themselves privately. And um, so, no, there isn't anything. (laughs) Let's work on it together. Yes, well, thank you. I
0: thank you for listening to the artelligence podcast visit us at artmarketmonitor.com